Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The U.S. and Britain are said to have a special relationship, but there's certainly some new wrinkles and changes in that relationship. Let's talk about them with the British Deputy Ambassador to the U.S., Michael Tatham, who is in Chicago. Nice to meet you. Thanks for joining us. Nice to meet you. It's a pleasure to be here. I wanted to talk a little about the NATO summit that uh, just took place, Montenegro's coming into the fold. And the the U.S. president had a lot of interesting things to say on television about Montenegro coming in. He talked about, um, kind of pondered whether he would want his son to defend Montenegro from attack, calling into question Article 5, the most important thing in, in the NATO pantheon. And... Um, do you get the feeling that the U.S. is really still fully committed to NATO? I think the NATO summit uh, was a good summit and it was a productive summit. Uh, there was a lot of media noise, a lot of excited uh, reporting uh, around the summit. And I can see why that was the case, because there was some strong stuff said. But there was also a very strong outcome uh, to the summit. There was a very strong declaration, uh, and that declaration uh, represented progress uh, on the issue of burden sharing. It represented significant progress in terms of uh, modernizing uh, and bringing uh, NATO up to date to make it more fit for purpose in areas like uh, deployability, uh, mobility, uh, and there was progress with uh, further expansion. Uh, of NATO and uh, bringing in new members. So my kind of feeling is that, you know, while I can see that there was uh, a lot of media interest in uh, in some of the kind of drama uh, around the summit, focus on the outcome, focus on the declaration, and that declaration uh, recorded very significant progress by NATO which is a great thing because uh, NATO uh, and the Article 5 uh, collective defense commitments uh, within it uh, we see uh, as a cornerstone of, of, of transatlantic security. What did you make when you pick up the New York Times and you read that the people in the U.S. administration are shifting around the declaration to keep it away from Donald Trump so that he doesn't uh, – veto it or comment on it and kind of has to swallow it whole. It seems like the U.S. is uh, pulling a stunt where they're kind of uh, not in, not exactly working with the commander in chief. Does that give the British pause about U.S. commitment to NATO? Yeah, maybe I, I've been in, in diplomacy too long and I'm, I'm a bit too cynical. But my experience is that, you know, when you get large numbers of countries uh, around the table uh, negotiating lengthy and complex texts, um, it's rarely uh, a smooth uh, and elegant process. But again, my kind of view is you always judge these things uh, by where you end up uh, and with the outcome uh, that you get. And I think the outcome that we got from the NATO summit was uh, a good one. And it's one that leaves uh, the alliance uh, stronger afterwards than it was before. I wanted to ask you a question about Montenegro coming into the NATO fold here. It's an interesting place, uh, and I've been there, and you are a former ambassador to Bosnia for the British. Um, it seems like a divided place when it comes to which way it would like to go. It has a political party that's very pro-Russian. It has a lot of Russian money in it. 
and the uh, the, the pro Russia party would would like to get power and have a referendum and get out of NATO the way the British got out of Brexit. Um, the, there's a there, it's going to be a source of some conflict. Do you see this ascension going smoothly? Uh, you know, Montenegro uh, made a, a democratic choice uh, to join uh, the alliance. Uh, the alliance uh, took the decision uh, that that would be a good thing, that collectively um, uh, security would be enhanced uh, by that uh, that decision. That's always tended to be the case, that, that, that NATO enlargement has expanded uh, the, the zone of, of transatlantic uh, security. Um, so, you know, uh, I, I think that this is, is a thing that with, with hindsight, we will judge to have been a, a good decision. Is it a place where Russia can continue to needle the um, alliance? This is a place where they've got a lot of influence and they're going to keep poking at it. I think that uh, Montenegro um, has set its strategic uh, orientation uh, and its strategic orientation has been uh, towards integration with uh, Euro-Atlantic organizations. Uh, As you say, there are political divisions uh, within the country. It's not monolithic politically, but no country... Uh, is uh, but what I would observe is that, that you know successive Montenegrin governments have pursued that steady uh, strategic uh, orientation in a purposeful uh, way over over many years. I'm talking with the British Deputy Ambassador to the U.S. Michael Tatham, and coming up after the break, where our film contributor Milos Stalik will be in talking with the star of the new Spike Lee film Black Klansman. Um, it, to continue with uh, Russia. Uh, Sergei Skripal, the, the Skripals, the uh, who were poisoned in in uh, Great Britain, and um, there's been U.S. sanctions about this now. Just this week, uh, the U.S. lobbed in with some of the things that are required under their their the Chemical Weapons Convention. Um, is, is the how do you read what Russia is up to? Because they deny everything about this. They they make fun of the U.S. for for slapping these sanctions on. Say there's no evidence. There's no uh, you know this is all fake news. Uh, is there anything that the British, the U.S., or anyone in NATO can do to change Russian behavior? Well, I think what we can certainly do. Uh, is send a strong signal to Russia that we view its behavior as uh, unacceptable, uh, that when it behaves uh, in a certain way, when it flouts international law or the rules-based international system, uh, there is a heavy consequence uh, to that um, and uh, impose measures accordingly, uh, which make Russia realize that there's a price to pay and which incentivize uh, Russia to to change its approach. Uh, Whether it will change its approach or not, uh, we will see. But I think that what's important is that when uh, Russia tests uh, the West in in various ways, uh, where it attacks our our security uh, interests, where it it violates uh, the rules-based international system, we respond when we're tested. Uh, we respond in a strong and, and firm way. I think that's that's very important. Is there are there more things 
uh, the British can do to dissuade Russia from um, attacking people on your territory? Well, I hope that uh, Russia will have uh, will have looked at what happened uh, after the, uh, the 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 poisoning of the, the Skripals. Uh, they will have seen uh, that this uh, triggered a very strong reaction uh, from the United Kingdom, but also from the United States and from a whole range uh, of European countries, uh, and felt that it's not worth it, that this, uh, these, these actions uh, are more damaging uh, for Russia because of the, uh, the immediate consequences in terms of, uh, of, of all the expulsions. Um, but they're also damaging because uh, they just reinforce uh, the sense of Russia uh, as a country which is doing unacceptable things and which is uh, increasingly internationally isolated. But first it was the Litvinenko poisoning, then it was the Skripals. Um, they, they don't seem to be changing their behavior at all. They're, they're doubling down. Um, you, you know, you're, you're right. I wish that uh, I wish there was a sort of magic solution. I wish there was a button uh, that you could press that would uh, have instant effect uh, in this area. But again, what sort of history uh, has taught us is that um, uh, those answers or, or the, the right uh, approaches don't always yield uh, instant results. If you look at the, the, the previous period, at the Cold War period, you know, the efficacy uh, of Western policies towards the then Soviet Union was something that, that, that uh, became apparent over, over decades, uh, not over months or uh, single years. So I think it is very important uh, that when Russia behaves in an unacceptable way, as for example, uh, with, uh, uh, with, with the use of chemical weapons uh, in, in the United Kingdom, that there's a strong immediate response. But I think it's also very important uh, that we, the UK, uh, and, and the West collectively uh, and all our allies put in place longer-term uh, strategic approaches. And I think we have been doing that uh, through NATO, for example, with the enhanced forward presence, which has put uh, more, uh, a bigger NATO presence in, uh, in, in the Baltic theatre. I think reinvigorating our deterrence posture in that way is important. I think imposing economic measures uh, in response to uh, Russia's illegal annexation of Crimea and its ongoing destabilisation uh, of eastern Ukraine and sustaining those economic measures, as, as the EU and uh, the US have done, uh, is important. And I think it's also important that we look at the changing nature of the challenge uh, that Russia uh, poses, uh, which is now becoming apparent in uh, the, the sort of information space and, and so on, and that we also look at how we're going to, to operate in that area. Right now, does it look like Russia's doing pretty well on all those scores? They're in interfering in the U.S. elections without a lot of penalty. They're uh, interfering in Britain without a lot of penalty. They seem to be weakening resolve for NATO without a lot of penalty. The British have voted to get out of the European Union, which seems like a, a great bonus for, for Russia. They're, they're, um, the Russians right now seem to be operating at a, you know, playing above their game? Um, I think there are different ways of, of looking at it. Uh, I think you can make a set of, of counter arguments about actually 
how Russia is benefiting uh, from its its current approach. I think that uh, if you look at Russian policies uh, over the last few years, um, what they have succeeded in doing uh, is reinvigorating uh, NATO so that we're far more focused uh, on uh, on deployability, mobility, uh, enhanced forward presence uh, and, and all these things. Uh, Russia's behavior has... Uh, Uh, has meant that over several years now, a significant level of economic sanctions have been applied uh, against Russia, sanctions which uh, inhibits Russia's uh, economic potential uh, and its uh, its capacity to grow. I think that Russia's actions, uh, uh, including uh, its support for the Assad regime uh, in uh, in Syria, have done a lot of damage uh, to, to Russia's international uh, reputation. So, uh, you know, I, I don't wholly buy uh, the idea that um, uh, Russia's approaches and its policies uh, have been productive in terms of Russian uh, Russian interests. Um, I, you know, I mean, again, I would look at, at sort of Russia's approach towards Ukraine. What Russia really ought to be looking for is what most countries are looking for, which is a sort of stable neighborhood uh, in which to live, in which you're at peace and have friendly, productive relations uh, with your your neighbors. What Russia has done in Ukraine, I think, will antagonize Ukrainian attitudes uh, towards Russia for, for a generation. I don't think that's good for uh, for Russia. I'm talking with British Deputy Ambassador to the U.S., Michael Tatham, and we're talking about a range of subjects. And I wanted to jump over and talk about Brexit and the negotiations there. Um, Things are going to happen pretty rapidly here with a a deadline for March for the negotiations and and things should happen by the fall that uh, should be pretty decisive. And the nego- I was reading up on the negotiations. They don't sound great. It sounds like um, they're kind of, kind of two sides talking by each other. And it, if if the British were to adopt what the EU wanted, it couldn't even fly through the through the UK Parliament. Yeah. Um, can you walk me through a happy ending here? Yeah, let me do that. Um, I mean, I hope I'm not going to sound like a stuck record because I'm echoing some of of what I was saying about the NATO uh, (laughs) summit. But again, what I would urge is that people don't get too fixated uh, on the media uh, reporting uh, and sort of focus on, uh, you know, sometimes the uh, the sort of less exciting, uh, duller uh, realities. Uh, those realities are that we are going through uh, a complicated, phased uh, negotiating approach. We're on the third phase. Uh, the first two phases uh, were more or less completed uh, on schedule. Uh, On the third phase, which is probably the most complex uh, phase of this negotiation, um, uh, you know, the the, uh, lead official uh, on the EU side, Michel Barnier, was in Washington not so long ago, and he was saying that we're about 80% uh, of the way through in terms of uh, agreement uh, on on the third phase uh, issue. So that's a a reasonable uh, rate uh, of, of progress. Um, and negotiations are going on, you know, even during this sort of, you know, what's traditionally a holiday month uh, of August. Um, the UK uh, has set out uh, its idea of a sensible way forward in a in a white paper, which is a, you know, quite an extensive uh, document. So it sets out some fairly detailed uh, thinking. We think that that is a good basis uh, for the negotiations uh, that 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 lie ahead. 
Um, it's in everyone's uh, interests, the UK and the other countries of, uh, of the EU, uh, that a deal is reached. Um, the EU, you know, one thing the EU is good at uh, is reaching deals. You know, this is what it does. Uh, people sit down in rooms together, uh, deal with very complex uh, issues, deal with very challenging issues uh, and find uh, and find ways forward. Uh, I think there will be goodwill on all sides because, as I said, everyone recognises it would be much better to have a deal, uh, a good deal, and not to have a deal. Uh, so I'm, you know, I, I, that's my, my walking you towards a sort of happy outcome. Is yeah. there a, a happy outcome for Northern Ireland and Ireland and the border there? Because I, I read up on that and I think, well, this is... Um this is, uh, you know, territory where there's just no, no, no people meeting. Uh, I think one thing is very clear, which is the, uh, the absolutely everyone in, in the United Kingdom, in, in, in Ireland, recognizes that the, the Belfast Agreement was a fantastic uh, achievement, which has brought uh, immense benefit uh, to the people uh, and economy of Northern Ireland. Uh, I was personally involved in, in, in parts of the Northern Ireland peace process and, and follow up to the Belfast uh, agreement. So I feel that uh, very strongly uh, at a personal level. And there is an absolute determination uh, on, on the UK side that that progress should not unravel. And we have made a commitment that there uh, will not be a hard border uh, between Northern Ireland uh, and the Republic of Ireland. Uh, and that's a commitment that, that we will stand by. Um, we have set out in the white paper uh, proposals for how that uh, can be achieved. Uh, and you know, we think that's a basis on which we can uh, negotiate now. But there's scenarios where Ireland would be required to put up a border and by WTO rules uh, and and have a, a border even if you don't want to. What we have set out in the white paper, we think offers a path uh, that will prevent uh, the necessity of a hard border uh, between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, which is something that we uh, uh, avoiding a hard border is is uh, something we have made a commitment on, uh, and we absolutely will want to deliver on that. British Deputy Ambassador to the U.S. Michael Tatham, thanks a lot for joining us and talking about all the world's problems. Not at all. It's a pleasure to be here. I hope I'll be able to come back soon. Coming up after the break, film contributor Milo Stalik is going to talk with the star of the new Spike Lee film, Mike Black Klansman. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. 
A year ago today, a white supremacist rally in Charlottesville, Virginia, sparked widespread conversation about what people can do to counteract hateful social movements. It's no coincidence that Spike Lee's latest film, Black Klansman, hits theaters today on that anniversary. Tomorrow, white supremacists will mark the Charlottesville anniversary by gathering in Washington, D.C., Ex-KKK leader David Duke and others will protest, quote, civil rights abuses against white people. Black Klansman follows this true story of how a Colorado Springs police officer named Ron Stallworth struck up a correspondence with David Duke in the 1970s. Stallworth eventually joins the KKK, but there's one thing that gets in the way of meeting David Duke in person. He's black. So Stallworth enlists his white partner to go to a Klan rally instead. This is the job. What's your problem? That's my problem. For you, it's a crusade. For me, it's a job. It's not personal, nor should it be. Why haven't you bought into this? Why should I? Because you're Jewish, brother. The so-called chosen people. You've been passing for a wasp. White Anglo-Saxon Protestant, cherry pie, hot dog, white boy. Hmm. That's what some light-skinned black folks do. They pass for white. Doesn't that hatred you've been hearing the Klan say, doesn't that piss you off? Of course it does. Then why are you acting like you ain't got skin in the game, brother? Rookie, that's my business it's our business i'm going to get you your membership card so you can go to the cross burning and get in deeper with these guys that was john david washington playing the role of ron stallworth and his partner played by adam driver in the new spike lee film black klansman wbez film contributor milos stalik recently sat down with john david washington to discuss the film so, John David, did you know this story before the film came about or no, heard sir, of it? No, sir, I didn't. I didn't. Um, I attended a historically black college, went to Morehouse College, mm-hmm. class of 06. So, uh, you know, I was, I was, was action-packed with, you know, stories and history of, of, uh, of our culture. And uh, this one seemed to slip through the cracks. I, I, I never even heard anything like this until I got introduced to the story. So Spike Lee approached you about? Yeah, I, I got a text from him. I was on location in Cincinnati. I got a text from him. I was working on another film. I got a text from him saying to call him. It says, call me. That's kind of how he communicates. <laughs> uh, you know, this is Spike. He briefly told me about the character, Ron Starworth. There's a book about the KKK, and he, he was a KKK member. I was like, all right, this sounds a little bit like Dave Chappelle, right? So he sent me the book. I read the book, and I was blown away. I was, I was floored. I couldn't believe this. That's how I found out about it. He and Jordan Peele were involved, and it was like a no-brainer for me. So how did you get inside the mind of the character, right. understand him from the book, obviously, but beyond that? Yeah. Oh, there was tons of information in the book that I was able to uh, extract from, but really it was when I got to talk to him. And, uh, to Ron. To Star- Ron Starworth, yeah. yes. Yeah, when, I, when I, I, I developed a personal relationship with him, talked to him on a weekly basis. And I wanted to get, you know, just, just what his mission was in life period, where he was in the late 60s and 70s as a person and what he believed in and family background, all those kinds of things that helped string together this, um, this character that I wanted to portray. I, I wanted to be careful and trying to emulate. I didn't want to try to talk like him, try to walk like mm-hmm. him. That's why it was important to get some of that background information and, you know, get his morals and his beliefs and codes and how he conducted himself in business, how he conducted himself, you know, how he ate, you know what I mean, what foods he liked, stuff like that. Because this is also a very specific era. It's the late, late 1970s uh, Black Power Movement, which right. is a big, big part of the story through yeah. the love interest that you develop right, in the right. film. Yeah. 
It's interesting too. Uh, you know, they say it in the film, like to being being able to be a part of the movement from the inside, using the law, and still being aware of of your people. And and he was. He was very much so. He was, you know, in the movie, he was more woke, as they say now, of to it through the character that Laura plays, uh, Patrice. But um, but feeling like he could make a change. Uh, on the other side, on the side of the law, you know, and I, and I thought that was very admirable of him. So, I mean, to me, this seems like a difficult character to play in one way because, and pre- especially personally, so right. h- how did you, did you feel being an African-American actor mm-hmm. uh, who then has to mouth uh, mm-hmm. racist epithets, uh, pretend to be, you know, a white racist, supremacist, mm-hmm. etc. Did that create a sense of Personal rage for you, or how did you get into this? Personal rage, yeah, uh, that's interesting. That's a good question. Um, you know, as me, the actor John David Washington, I had to remove myself, you know, to fully, you know, inhabit everything the spirit, the spirit of this man. I had to remove myself completely. You know, hate has a language; it has a vernacular. You know, so some of these words that you hear in the film, they're, they're on purpose. You know, they, they're not for shock value, but he had to sort of entice hate. You know, and, and on the other side of that phone, so that so he could become familiar with him and he could be a part of it, so he can infiltrate the clan. It's, I mean, the slogan is infiltrate hate. So th- these words and these and th- what he had to do, I totally understand. And I don't know personally if I could do that, but I know if I was in his, I mean, that man did it, and that's a part of the why he's he's a hero to me because he was able to go there. A kind of silent. Courage, right? I mean, the courage. Silent, but he, no, it was in a very vocal one, too, in, in, in the respect of using these words. You know, there, there's a story he shares, you know, with, with David Duke in the film that I won't, get, that I won't divulge to you. But, um, yeah, there's a certain way of talking to, I'm not going to say these people, I'm going to call it hate, mm-hmm. to hate that, uh, that has to happen. And he was brave enough to do that. So the, the other reason that I think it's a difficult role is because, obviously, Ron Stallworth could not personally go meet the clan, right? Mm-hmm. And so this is the role of Adam Driver. Mm-hmm. And so I'm not saying this is bad dramatics because it's just the way that the story went and this is how it happened. Mm-hmm. But in a way, he's sidelined because suddenly Adam Driver comes in and becomes the same Ron Stallworth, right? Well, it was a total team effort. I, I think a big takeaway from this film is the support he got. And there's more, it's more detailed in the book. The support he got from the department, mm-hmm. you know, that, that, that men and there was, there was women involved too that, that didn't look like him. You know, they, they, they didn't look like Ron Starworth, but they believed in his mission. So I don't know if it was sidelined. There was just certain roles. He was dependent on, on Adam's character to do his job, and, and, and Adam's character was dependent on my character to do his job. It was a total team effort. They were in unison, you know, simpatico. And part of the fill-in is, is that he falls in love with Patrice, who is mm-hmm. a black activist. And mm-hmm. so how did that factor into it? I mean, it, it was a beautiful relationship you know it was based off of beliefs and principles and passion and not passion in the sexual sense but passion in you know beliefs and 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 really reflective of the time of that time of what i was learning in my research is coming off of vietnam war it just took a toll on this country people were just fed up you know you saw the afros the clothes you saw it in the artwork in in the in the music and movies they were just expressing themselves like to full capacity so i believe that that relationship stemmed off of what was happening and it was and it was such an organic one that uh, it was a beautiful to watch on screen. But in some ways, you mentioned the Vietnam War, which was never really resolved in this country, hmm. and it still remains a really deep wound. Hmm. 
And it's interesting in terms of the film, Black Klansman, also Spike Lee brings it back to contemporary times, right. especially to Charlottesville. Right. So how, did that play something in your mind as you were doing this, that the story, which is 40 years old, mm-hmm. but still is oddly contemporary, that not that much has changed? It wouldn't be to my benefit as a performer. to, to that, That's skipping steps. That's looking too far ahead. Now, seeing the final product and seeing how it was edited and put mm-hmm. together, you see the connective tissues there and you see how hate is generational, you know, how it's, it's, it's systemic and how it's been able to survive and almost evolve in a way. So I see that now. Um, and, you know, the Ku Klux Klan has had many resurgences. I mean, uh, Birth of a Nation was a huge resurgence for the Klan. David Duke was a, sort of a rebirth, a clean-cut, nice boy-next-door guy, you know, and we're seeing stuff now that's happening. So they have a history of reinventing themselves. Hate has a history of reinventing itself. You're listening to Worldview. I'm Staley speaking with actor John David Washington, who plays the lead in the new Spike Lee from Black Klansman, the lead of Ron Stallworth, mm. a black police officer in Colorado Springs who infiltrated the KKK. I think you said, I read someplace in an interview, that what, one thing that was really meaningful for you is seeing the Ku Klux Klan membership card. Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That brought it home for me. Like, you know, I mean, it's talking to him, yes, in the book and the research and all that. But it was something about holding that card. Like, that just, I don't know, that just brought it brought it home. That just, just, just brought it full circle. Like, my goodness, man, this is... This man was extremely heroic, and 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 he used his real name, like, and he said he didn't mean to. He just had a, he it was a mistake. He was just in the moment at the time, you know. And he, and we we joked about it a lot, like how he had to be an actor, really. But yeah, that card was signed by the man himself. <laughs> Mr. Duke. So I was just like, my God, this is crazy. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. So this is the second time, really, that you worked with Spike Lee, right? Because you were in Malcolm very, X. Very good. Small role. Yeah, right. Right. Listen, there's no such thing as small roles, only small actors. That was okay. a big role for All me. Right. Was, it got me my start. And I have since grown as an artist. I have matured into it gracefully, you know, but I'll never forget that. Well, it's day. a big leap. Let's go uh, that yes, way. It, yeah, it is. It is. I have more responsibility. That's for so sure. working with Spike Lee was what in comparison to other filmmakers? Uh, uh, um, I can't compare. This was this. I've never an, had an experience like this. Why? The environment, because the the collaborative environment. It felt like true teamwork. I felt like he trusted me full heartedly, mm. and uh, that was encouraging. And 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 I was able because of that trust. I, you know, I come from a football background, so when your teammates, your coach trust you with the game plan, with uh, making plays out there, so to speak, it gives you this courage and 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 and. Um, it really gives you this confidence to to let things come to you, let the game come to you, so to speak. This sort of way of finding things organically in the performance that you you prepare for, but you can't necessarily plan for. And he's a master at at, at detecting and knowing when there's moments happening and, and momentum. So when you're with your scene partners, Adam, Laura, they're all great scene partners, too. And stuff is happening that you didn't necessarily, that's not on the page, but that is just coming out of you through your preparation, the months of preparation. And again, the environment that's set by Spike Lee, those are moments I live for. So this experience, I say more than anybody else, I've never felt more trusted with the with the material so it's one way of directing right because the, oh, other, yeah. way, the other way of directing is to make the actor insecure right <laughs> listen there's all this there's, there's what i also learned too it's funny you say that with spike lee which was great and through the you know through my other experiences there's not there's there's not just one way to get to the truth there's not just one way to tell a story there's many different ways don't cheat the process don't don't rush the process there's everybody has their own I'm not saying one is better than the other but uh, this one was the most unique for me I mean, as far as just the freedom. 
So what was Spike doing? Saying do more, uh, no. feel free, yes. feel good, you know. Feel good, you know, feel you're in the free. right moment. Yeah, well, I mean, his notes were more blocking notes where the camera's going to be. Uh, he would strip stuff down and stuff wasn't working, he kind of say, but he never suggested anything. He was encouraging. And, and, and again, it was sometimes what he didn't say to me. Like a lot of times when you see the, the script supervisor or or the director coming to you, like here comes some notes. But um, but um, like that Jaws theme happens. But uh, for him, he, sometimes he'd look at me while he's walking to me and just walk right past me <laughs> and even now I was like oh alright I'm staying in the zone then JD you know so it was all good so obviously acting was not new to you I mean you were you know you grew up with your father as an actor uh-huh, uh-huh. and you and my mother and my and mother. your mother yes. and you consciously chose to go to football instead of acting but then came back to it yeah uh, so yeah football was it was sort of my pipeline to independence it, it, it really gave me again I, I guess I've been talking about confidence a lot today um, it gave me the confidence to know that I established something built something on my own you know there's no nepotism involved there's none in this in this business either but I needed to go through that in my father's ascension in this career as you get more you know popular and more recognizable I felt my life was changing my relationships with people were changing it was shifting I should say so your father Denzel Washington is actually a pretty good role model because he chooses his roles pretty consciously yeah, I, I uh, yeah, he he definitely has a system. He he does what you know what he wants to do. So what do you want to do as an actor? What do I you want to accomplish? I want to be a part of great films. I want to be. I want to work with great filmmakers, great people, people that are cinema enthusiasts, the people that care about the craft, people that cherish the process of not skipping any steps. That's the way I'm. Le- I mean, what I learned on this project is like that's what I, I need more mm-hmm. of. So what do you hope that Black Klansman does for this country now, having seen it? completely complete and cut what do i hope i hope they're affected by it i hope this can spark conversations i mean these are how people think and feel at their family barbecues and behind closed doors you know there are words that ron has to use again i talk about hate that hate recognizes so we need to start examining some of these words we use even if we're joking about it even that we got to start examining what the vernacular is that that ends up leading to hate and how do we reverse? And I don't have all the answers. I don't know what these words are, but I know what the hate, hateful words are. And we got to find a way to at least make that shift, make that change. So hopefully when they see that, when they see this film and hear these words just getting thrown out out there and they're affected. I hope they're affected by it. I hope they're uneasy about it. I hope it gets awkward sometimes in that movie theater. I hope they I hope that it's interesting too. some people I've been sitting with watching it. They're laughing awkwardly, and they're laughing at moments that you don't think they should be laughing at. It's almost like, should I even be laughing? I found myself like, wow, why am I laughing at that? But because they're laughing at the language and how it's applied, you know, that hatred. Because it all starts and ends with language. I mean, that's the first place that you really see what's underneath Hmm. the the, the political, social behavior of an ear. Words are powerful. Words are powerful. Very powerful, and with the wrong intentions could be, you know, can lead to disastrous results. You're listening to Worldview. I'm Milo Stelic. I've been speaking with actor John David Washington, whose new film is Black Klansman, in which he plays the lead role of Ron Stallworth. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Spike Lee's Black Klansman opens in theaters today. For sure, check that out. Coming up after the break, Weekend Passport, and we'll teach you how to have a global good time on the weekend. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ.
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonnell, and it's time for Weekend Passport, where we let you know how to have an international good time on the weekend. Our global citizen friend, Nari Safavi, is here. Nice to see you, Nari. Uh, Good day, Jerome. It's great to be here again. Now, the music, we're having a very musical weekend passport this time. Absolutely. And we were were just hearing some interesting tunes. Exactly. This is kind of a flashback, a nostalgia trip going back to the Europe of uh, 1980s. And this is uh, there's a performance going on this tonight, actually, here in the the Navy Pier. Uh, Thomas Andrews, the old voice of the Modern Talking, along with the band Modern Talking, and a group of other European stars of 1980s are going to be here performing tonight, and uh, it's it's going to be... I already was walking into the Navy Pier today, and I saw groups of people gathering and speaking all kinds of different languages, talking about anticipating (laughs) the performance tonight, so it's really... It will be interesting global audience over there tonight. And they are in the grand ballroom here at Navy Pier at the end of the pier. I think that Navy Pier is upping its game musically this year. They've had some really good acts. I know also this weekend, Basil and the Supernaturals is playing at the Beer Garden on Saturday at 5.30, our Syrian-American friend who's been on the show several times. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot going on at Navy Pier and and this particular uh, event tonight is going to be like a four and a half hour, five hour (laughs) extravaganza of all this with so many acts and also DJs coming and performing for people to be dancing over there and there is a gentleman from LA Iman Hushman I think he's Iranian American from his name he is hosting the evening and I guess he will be DJing so there is going to be a lot of interesting things going on. All right, get your 80s Euro dance on at the Grand Ballroom tonight. Danari, we got a festival we want to mention? Yeah, also we're going to Cuba. There is a festival, annual, ninth annual festival Cubano going on uh, uh, today through Sunday, August 12th at Reeves Park in Chicago. That's on the corner of Nagarnasaf and uh, and uh, Fullerton Avenue. Uh, all kinds of activities, DJing, dancing, and family kinds of fun going on over there. Cuba-centric, uh, Cubano-centric uh, kinds of fa- family activities. And lastly, we're going to check in with some music, more music. Yeah, absolutely. There is going to be an, uh, also an interesting festival going on uh, this tomorrow night over at Martyrs. And uh, and uh, if an old Chicago uh, artist that has been around as a visual artist for many years. We have seen some of her work doing public work, uh, public artwork, but she's also a, quite a music, gifted musical performer and a vocalist. Uh, Sandra Antrogiorgi is performing uh, this weekend with ESSO, uh, an Afro-Caribbean band in Chicago. Sandra, nice to meet you. Thanks nice for coming in. Nice to meet in. you, Jerome. Thank you for having me. Tell us a little about yourself. You are a singer, but you're, as Mary said, a visual artist, you're a painter, you're, um, you're a multifaceted <laughs> artistic talent. Yeah, I'm a painter. I do um, public murals. I do my studio work and some wood stuff. And I also, I'm a musician. So I've been playing since I was around five years old. My father taught me guitar and I studied painting and drawing at the School of the Art Institute, but I wanted to make sure that I kept the music in there as well. So is there I also a, perform. Is there a vibe between the two? There is, definitely, yeah. I mean, they they influence one another, and they both come from kind of the same place. Um, I would say that one, like the visual art, is probably the hardest thing I do because it's so vulnerable and it takes so much out of you. 
and you're so self-reflective. I thought singing was like that. <laughs> well, now, but then there's the writing part of music that, that the creative part comes from the same place when you're composing. But the performance, uh, when you're actually on stage, there is a thrill to it that kind of carries you through that vulnerability or that fear. So it's, it's just as good. It's just as powerful, except when you're completely out there, you're often, you know, an hour and a half, you're off stage. The other people get to stay there and contemplate your work. And it kind of makes you feel, you know, some kind of way. That's fascinating. Uh, you're bringing that subject up because we love to talk about the creative process mm-hmm. in this segment. And when you have a sensation, some sort of a creative impulse, how do you know uh, whether that's going to be manifested musically or in some sort of a visual medium? Uh, wh- what goes on within you that you decide as to how to express that sensation? Mm, that's an interesting question. I don't even think I make the decision. I, it, I think mm-hmm. it's immediate. So I immediately know whether it's going to be a composition hmm. because I can I hear it in advance or I already know if it's going to be something visual. I see it in advance. So, okay. it, but, but the thing is that that truthfulness, where it, where it all comes from, it's, it's all in the same place. You know, it's, so it's it has all to be, that intuition. So there has to be an integrity to the mm-hmm. process. Oh, to, both, yeah. to, be, Absolutely. to be true to whatever that's going Absolutely. on within you. Yes. And manifested in the proper channel. Exactly. I see. Interesting. Now, tell us about the event at Martyrs that's uh, going on here. Also, we're really excited about that. Um, this is tomorrow night at 9 p.m., and I'm sharing the stage with ESO um, and Beatsy Bateria and Slow Mo, DJ. Um, but this is our second collaboration, or second time that I've shared this, the stage with ESO. Um, they opened for me in, at City Winery in January, along with Pecados de Maria. And now we're doing it again, but um, this kind of coincides with their vinyl release party. So I'm opening for ESO, which is fabulous because they're, they're an incredible band. They're one of my favorite bands. Um, we should probably hear some music. Um, let's hear, should we hear your music? We've got, I think we've got a little bit of ESO's music, too. A little bit of ESO, and maybe Sandra can do a little acapella for us. <laughs> ah, you're going to go acapella. <laughs> Whatever you want. All right, okay. so here's your friend's ESO. Let's hear a little bit of ESO. Esso, and they'll be performing with Sandra and Tom Giorgi at uh, Martyrs tomorrow night at 9 o'clock, starting at 9 o'clock. Um, they sound like fun. They're awesome. Yeah, they're, they have that kind of music that's like tropical funk, dance music, feel-good music. Um, influence, their influences would be like Puerto Rico and, or Mexican music, Puerto Rican music, cumbia. So it's fun. It's a fun time. Wonderful. Now, Nari wants you to sing right here a cappella, <laughs> uh, like on the spot. <laughs> um, all right, I'll do, I'll do a little something. All right, great. Uh, this one is an original song that I just I wrote it recently. It's called Yo Te Vi. And so the influence that I had for this, because um, my music is deeply rooted in, in my Puerto Rican culture. 
Um, but then there's so many other things that kind of come in growing up in Pilsen Little Village, listening to, you know, Mexican music and, and also R&B, neo soul. So I kind of, you know, fuse it. And this is what came out. This is a love song about a woman who sees uh, the person she's been with for years with someone else and realizes that, um, you know, they're, they're going to move on, you know. Uh, it's called Yo Te Vi. Ese sueño de niñez se ha realizado Al decir que nos casemos Lo deseas ahí por fin ¿Crees que todo? <laughs> Bravo. I, was just, I was just thinking if I sing this it's going to blow the mic up because it's such a loud and powerful oh, yeah. song <laughs> maybe I should stop but anyway, it was going really lot. good I was yeah. like, yeah. it gets really powerful Bravo. Uh, so people can come to Martyrs and see the really powerful yeah, part you can, well yeah because I get to be as loud as I want and, and I get really blown away yeah, yeah. but I'm told I have one of you know I, I project really well so I don't want to hurt the listeners right now. <laughs> it's best to hold back a little bit. Give <laughs> people anticipating. Exactly. <laughs> uh, what, uh, what's, uh, so people can come out and see, uh, what's the other group, uh, Beats and Bateria? Beats y Bateria. Um, yeah, I think they're another Latino uh, Band. I don't know enough about them. To You're going to find out. Yeah, I'm going to find out more. But, but there's I, a know DJ performing too. Yes, there's Slow Mo is also one of the DJs that night. Okay. But I have faith in the lineup because Esso is, like I said, they you know they put this together for their vinyl release party and. Yeah. So this is going to be another four or five hour probably marathon. Maybe six or seven. No. <laughs> tomorrow night. So. Yeah. Well. Yeah. So it starts at nine and it ends in the morning. The next morning. No, I'm just kidding. So nine o'clock until God knows. I want to ask a question about Puerto Rico. Sure. It, um, is there a new national conversation going on about Puerto Rico after the hurricane? Do you think it, we're we're talking a lot about it on Worldview, and we're doing a segment on Mondays. Uh, next Monday, we're doing one on uh, the kind of energy sources that Puerto Rico has, and Congress seems to want more fossil fuels, and the other people want think renewables are an obvious solution for Puerto Rico. Uh, how do you feel about what's going on and the conversation we're having about Puerto Rico right now? So when this all happened, uh, we put together a show at City Winery. We were performing at City Winery and, and put a fundraiser together. And because of that, I was able to talk to a lot of people in the community um, who were victims of the hurricane and who had to come to Chicago, which tons of families had to do that. Um, and I, I put together, you know, I wrote a song as a result of it. Um, but the conversation right now seems to be about, because the, the truth is the numbers keep growing. There are so many people that are affected by the hurricane and, and not so much, um, or not also because of um, their homes being blown away, but a lot of it has to do with um, the resources. They don't have the resources for medical care if they have diabetes. So there, there are a lot of people who are, are still dying because they don't have those resources. So that that's part of the conversation, um, rebuilding, you know, the infrastructure. What happens when, because we're entering hurricane season, I believe we're in it now. Yep. What happens when this happens again? And what's the response going to look like? Because, frankly, we, th there was not a good response. 
And um, a lot of people there still don't have electricity, and and that means that you're using generators. That means you have to buy gas. The gas prices are, you know, skyrocketing. So people there are just like, how do we live every day? What are we doing every day to feed the families or to take care of my health? Or you know, so I, I think that right now, in in uh, the humble park community and a lot of and Edmosa Park, those are the conversations that I'm hearing. You know, the thing we're going to do on, on Monday is uh, basically about Congress and what Congress thinks about Puerto Rico. And um, there's this austerity plan that they've really put in place for Puerto Rico. And uh, on Monday, we're going to talk about how the Congress people, the Republicans seem to think well, they should build back with fossil fuels instead of uh, renewables. There's um, uh, There's a strong problem when it comes to uh, yes. Congress and uh, the disconnect. And, and they're the real power broker in the, in the situation. Yeah, I think it's, um, it's a big concern. I think we're all worried about it. We, we, we're worried about the future of Puerto Rico. I don't think fossil fuels is a solution at all. You know, but I, the thing is that we don't have the power to even make those decisions on the island. We, we don't have that kind of representation um, in Congress, we, we just we don't have representation. We don't have enough representation, and we don't have a voice. So it's kind of like all these decisions are being made, and our people, you know, the, the diaspora, they just have to accept whatever is being given to them. That's what it seems like, you know. Well, we'll keep our eye on Puerto Rico and Thank you. have a great time tomorrow night. Thank you, Jerome. Thank you, Nadi. Sandra Antongiorgi is a singer. She's a songwriter and painter from Puerto, Puerto Rico originally, lives here in Chicago for many years. And she'll be at Martyrs tomorrow night at 9 with her friends from SO Afro Jam Funk Beat. And you can check them out at Martyrs on Lincoln Avenue. Have a great weekend, everybody. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.